0: Welcome to the Radical Therapist, the premier post psychology podcast. And I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 91. And today we are talking collaborative dialogical practice with Dr. Monica Sesma. It's going to be a good one. Uh, But before we get there, I have a quick announcement. Um, On Thursday, May 27th, I am doing a free webinar titled Therapist to Consultants. So if you are a therapist social worker counselor what have you that wants to take your skills into and I think there is no better time than now to um, take our skills into organizational systems work Um, if that's something you are interested in doing this free webinar would be I think very much of interest to you I'm gonna share a little bit about my experience You know, my previous business experience, then being trained as a therapist, then. Uh, kind of taking these skill sets into uh, organizational systems work. So if that's something that's you would like to explore more, please join me on my free webinar, May 27th, Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can register for this webinar. There's a link in the show notes. And uh, there will be – you can go to my website, drchrishoff.com, or my Instagram at drchrishoff. And uh, registration will be on the links there. So please join me for that. And so now let's talk collaborative dialogical practice with Dr. Monica Sesma. And Dr. Sesma is a social constructionist, constructionist-oriented family therapist, educator, supervisor, and research She's an adjunct professor at the Workland School of Education and the academic coordinator of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at the Faculty of Social Work, University of Calgary. She also works at the Eastside Family Center and the Calgary Family Therapy Center as a therapist and supervisor. Her main therapeutic and research interests focus on relational and systemic work with immigrants refugees and newcomers and she pursued her studies at uh, in psychology at the Universidad Nacional Autonoma Mexico and in the Universidad de las Americas and has a master's in social work with clinical specializ- specialization at the University of Calgary. She is also a board member of the Taos Institute and, and the Canadian Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. And I have the pleasure of calling her a friend and colleague and she's uh, wonderful and uh, let's get to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Sesma. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast.
1: Hi. Thank you so much, Chris, for inviting me. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, it's great to see you again. Um, okay, so you recently wrote something, and I've been wanting to get you on this show for a while because I've known you for a while, and I really appreciate the work that you do. And uh, But you wrote something interesting, and, and um, it just kind of drove me to try to get you on here and and talk about your work a bit. But uh, you wrote wrote something uh, recently for the uh, Taos Institute around collaborative dialogic practitioners as infiltrators. But before we get to there, I, I guess I would like to start by asking you about your background and how you came to be a collaborative practitioner and who was influential to you.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. And so the story about how I got connected with the collaborative dialogic ideas like is long, and uh, but I will do my best to summarize. And uh, so when I was doing my bachelor, and uh, I got introduced to one article from Harlene Anderson and Harry Golishan. So that was in uh, in the late eighties, the early nineties. And that article and uh, was very impactful to me. Is maybe you remember about the collaborative and um, uh, dialogic ideas? Yes, yes. The CSL and but in any case, and during that time, I was highly infused in ideas of behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy, and my faculty, like not the faculty, but the uh, faculty of psychology was highly influenced by behaviorism, etc. So that was a quite a refreshment to me. It was like very fresh and new. And I got to uh, another article by Harry Golishan. So it, it was just like um, a rewire of, of my brain. So, and uh, I focused my bachelor thesis on the work of and um, postmodern, postmodern ideas in therapy, and I use what what we have available in Spanish from from Harlene and also in English. So I use Harlene and Anderson and Harry Golishan ideas to largely in in that thesis. After that, I was like really wanted to be you know close to ideas. So I I I did my own journey on how these ideas were in Mexico, who was connected with these ideas. And uh, it's a very long story, but I found that the Universidad de Las Americas where I did my master's and my PhD, Mm. a faculty that were connected with Harlene Anderson. So I I went to do my master's and that there, and I met part of the faculty, Silvia London, Margarita Tarragona were teaching in that program. And they opened an organization, Grupo Campus Elicios, that were promoting and uh, postmodern ideas in therapy and education. And uh, they had like a, a formal training in collaborative practices. So I, I, I am the second generation of that and, uh, program. And so I did my master's. My master's was highly influenced and, uh, by um, collaborative um, language systems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, that it was called during that time. And so practically what, what I feel is uh, I was like the dot, right, <laughs> within these ideas. Yeah. And, uh, and I see my mentors in, in Mexico. Uh, Harlene Anderson is highly influential. And uh I, I, I know that in Latin America is highly influential, right? In Brazil, in Argentina, and um and in Mexico, there are programs, master's programs, there are institutes like independent institutes, like many people, and uh promote um her ideas. And uh, then I became faculty with Grupo Campos Elicios, and through the activities of, of Grupo Campos Elicios, they organize uh, for example, Silvia London, they International Summer Institute, etc. So it's, as I told you, it's a long story. My PhD mm-hmm. is in collaborative ideas with couples. But after that, I moved to Canada and I felt like an orphan and lonely here, right? Because, and a few people knew about Harlene Anderson, but there is not a community about her work mm-hmm. like in Latin America, like in Mexico. So what I did that is stay connected with this network. And then uh, I offered myself to be the executive director and uh, and to help. It's like a consumption of programs around the world. So it's like 14, 16 uh, programs in different countries that promote uh, collaborative dialogic ideas. And then, uh, so I have been the, the executive director for and since 2015 now so it's it's a, a long time but but that is what kept me um connected with uh, not only with collaborative dialogic ideas but with my mentors Carlyn Anderson Silvia London Margarita Tarragona is is many mentors i i think i have and um, yeah
0: yep and you have an it's event good. coming up which we'll get to towards the end but uh, i know mm-hmm. that but uh, I, quick question what brought you to canada what was uh... What was your intention of going to Canada?
1: You know, and uh, I was a, a, a professor in my country, right? Mm-hmm. And I was mostly doing teaching. I was, uh, I was not doing a lot of research. And most people in Mexico, like people that teach in university level, and uh, many we don't do research because there is no money to do research. There is no funding. And, and most of the programs are professionalizing programs, and uh, rather than research programs, it's different from North America. I learned that here, right? Like, like uh, research is the main agenda. Mm-hmm. Bringing money to the universities is a, a major agenda. Getting publications out there. But the culture in Mexico is, is different. In most universities, it's about training practitioners right and so i I was missing that part uh because i was going to conferences and international trainings and i was building my international community then i i of course what we read mostly comes from outside right We, we read a lot of what uh people write in in english in north america so i thought during that time that i have and um ideas and about how to do research. I have my own curiosities, my own topics that I wanted to explore and expand and write about these. Uh, so I, I wanted to expand right, my, my skills as practitioner and as academic, as a researcher. So I thought that a postdoc was a good opportunity for me to build those skills that I was not using or I was using very little. And so I, be, I came here originally as a postdoc and uh, I did a three-year postdoc. And then uh, I, I, I came here with my family, my husband, my, my two children. And then they didn't want to go back to Mexico. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it was a harsh decision, right? Because yeah. I have all life in Mexico. And uh, what I was doing, I, I didn't leave Mexico as uh, e- uh, immigrating from from safety or from economical situation it was more as an adventure and as a project to expand my academic skills and then I as a family project we decided to stay here longer (laughs) and now I'm still here
0: yeah how are you surviving those winters
1: (laughs) yeah it's harsh it's it's harsh I do the truth like and uh, uh it's beautiful here. It's sure. breathtaking, and uh, and the nature here is is just like <laughs> you are in heaven. It's just so beautiful and gorgeous. But it's harsh. Like it's uh, so it's eight months winter, mm-hmm. and from those eight months there are so many days minus around minus twenty. It's just so harsh. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, okay. All right. So, like I said earlier, you have you have written. I'm going to kind of go into your writing a little bit. You've written how collaborative friends and colleagues are magnificent infiltrators, transforming practices within communities and organizations, either in therapy, education, supervision, policy, and research, and of course other fields of practice. Can you say more about this practice of the infiltrator? Yeah, not for sure.
1: And so the way I see infiltrator, and uh, like like, if we look for meanings about this word, there are so many, and uh, there are. And I think the the dominant discourse about or the definition about infiltrator is more about passing information, right? Like mm-hmm. a spy, right? Like <laughs> like bringing information. But but there are other connotations, other meanings about infiltrator, and and the one that I'm taking is about being within with uh, inside and being influential and uh, doing things to influence ideology culture and um, and and the way I see infiltrators is you are inside and and you are part of, of the group right of, of the relation of, of all the relationships the community and uh, we are not just you know like a table or a chair like we are there, making meaning together with others, co-creating with others, and I think, and even me that I consider myself and um, like shy or introverted, like and I am there, right? And I think what what we can contribute in in co-creating meaning is is relevant, right? So what what we share, etc. So for me infiltrator is and uh, is this piece of and uh, I remember also the narrative therapies about being the center and or, or in the margins but influential. I, I think that and uh, what narrative therapy mentions about the center but influential also connects with my understanding of infiltrator, right mm-hmm. if you are there and you 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 have power. To uh, to transform or to influence, and especially when um, the ideologies uh, relate with social injustices, I think is is mostly and uh, one of, of my core values is is uh, transforming. So it is more uh, equitable, diverse, just, etc. Right, less oppressive and uh, etc. So and that is the way I, I understand infiltrator. And I have seen these through the years and uh, in multiple ways, even people that think that because they, they identify, you know, like in the eighties in the nineties, like post mm-hmm. and they, they were marginalized. And then maybe through the years they have been identified less postmodern, more like social construction and post-opposition. Yes. And uh but what I have seen is uh, these colleagues and, and friends and, and former students and all these people that connect with these ideas uh, having the capacity to transform those places. And uh, I think one example is what the Relational Research Network is doing and uh, with the Taos Institute. But there is so many Examples like if you follow the work of Marilene Grandesa, for example, in Brazil mm-hmm. and and what she does and and how she has troubled the notions of how therapy should look like, how community therapy should look like, and what she's doing in in having these uh, collaborative dialogic community groups, right when When, when Brazilians come, to these meetings and they talk about their issues and and i, I was the other day thinking how and can i bring that to canada and maybe it's impossible because of our understandings of and uh, in north america about privacy and ethics and and uh, you know and um, individual information etc so but what i have seen through the years is how uh, people, right? Collaborative, dialogic practitioners, and ask difficult questions. And they trouble ideology that is dominant or practices that are oppressive. They trouble those notions, and uh, and then something happens. Some magic happened. and then convers- conversations have place, negotiations have place, and or even you know, and um, with, you don't need to change policy. And to, to transform things, right? Uh, one of the of the articles uh, also that I'm thinking of is the one that uh, you wrote with Justine and Amy and Carmen.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, that ar- that article, and uh, also when I read the, the findings, when you interview so many family therapists and in US and within one organization about how. How they manage uh, social justice in therapeutic conversations, and one of the outcomes I think from that article is that most people, family therapists, right? They didn't thought of themselves as advocators or as as having a political stance, and then, and they were very political outside the therapeutic room, but not necessarily political inside the the room. And then I thought, okay, and how? But how they are changing? And uh, therapeutic practices, or most of them maybe are teaching in universities, and and I'm sure that they are asking the, the difficult questions, right? To their managers or their directors or or the people you know that have more power than them to transform those. So but I can give you examples, and I know that these these are personal or not, but for example, my my friends in Cananquil in Yucatán, Mexico,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the, the they have an, an organization, Canon Kill, that train people in therapy, supervision, education, etc. But, but many of their students sometimes are not necessarily therapists and they work in government. And and, and there are so many stories from, from alumni, from Canon Kill alumni that they were in government and they were able to change. Policy and uh, to improve the, the life or the rights of women, indigenous peoples, and uh, who speaks Mayan and who's not, where, like, to, to incorporate Mayan culture into programs and or the lo- local culture. So, and uh, you need just to hear the stories from Kanankil and uh, students yeah. that they went into government. It's just fascinating.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of. Um training like non-therapists in these ideas and especially people like you said that have actual uh, power in government and what have you and can do actual change not that we can't but i mean everybody everybody has influence for change but yeah that's a i I love that idea i'd love to learn more about that work yeah um okay so you talked about uh, advocacy and therapy gain, gaining traction, and um, and I I believe that too. That you know, then a lot of this podcast is about that, and people are still kind of feeling their way through as how to do that. And you mentioned the article that uh, I co-wrote with a couple people. Um, but I I understand you take the stance and I'm really appreciative of this take the stance of curiosity as advocacy and I'm wondering if you could say more about how you use questions in this effort
1: yeah and so you know when I moved to Canada and uh, to tell you the truth I felt devoiced I am silenced and I was the Mexican who knew nothing (laughs) And after being so many years and a professor and and I was doing research, I'm saying I was doing very little, but I I was teaching and research classes. I I was publishing very little in Spanish, but I was. So I came here and what I noticed is and because I was the outsider, the newcomer, and and Mexican, I was told multiple times, and uh, oh, but you know, and we will teach you how to do research here. We will teach you how to do therapy. And sometimes when I share, and uh, when I thought about therapy in, in my department or in the spaces where I was, People was like, oh, they do that in Mexico. Oh, you know, like and in, and they were not curious about how we do therapy in Mexico. No, nobody. They were fully to colonize me, right? Nobody asked me that how are teaching pedagogies in Mexico? How do you train your students? And I as I say, when I came here, I had like 15 years um, teaching in postgraduate uh, university. Nobody was curious. About anything, but what I noticed was so I I became a like a radical listener in the beginning, not by choice necessarily because nobody cared for what and and what I did, and, and I was not creating that space for me. So I started to listen, listen, and I, I was just amazed. No, amazed is positive, like shock. Maybe is the word that I'm looking for about many policies about how students got accepted in the program. And I, I remember, for example, and uh, some students from Nigeria, and but those students were refugees, they, they were already permanent residents or citizens, but their background and that maybe they, they came originally from Nigeria and And they didn't have as this is for post uh, students that that wanted to study um, a master's in in counseling psychology and and they the way you know that they were selecting students was for example, and uh, putting uh, letters of reference have some points grants other points grades other points, et cetera but the, the thing is that and uh, students from other countries were you know, like in this system of, of points, and very low because they didn't have grants. So grades, they were as competitive as, as the locals. And uh, it's the, the letters of, of, of reference were extremely strong. But when they went to grants, you know, the local students were to the top, and, uh, and, and the students from other countries or immigrants were in the lower because of grants. So I, I ask questions, right? Like how come is that grants could be something so definitional here to accept the students when in our countries, like in my country, we don't have grants for students. And when there were opportunities, like for example, in my situation, and grants were not for me. If I would have applied in Mexico to the little grants there, there were, they will never give that to me because I was middle class, right? Like grants are different from, from how I saw, so I asked these questions right like like who decide this pointing and uh, a strategy to select students? and none of them have an interview. It was just based in this point. How come is that we are not interviewing these students to to feel their passion, their commitment, what they want, uh, what are their dreams and hopes if they be, become uh, uh, counselors? So and I have seen these like through other and um, colleagues that also feel inspired by collaborative dialogic ideas is asking questions. I saw that you and I, at what point participated in one organization together, right? Yeah. And we were investing our energy, energy, the and I and I saw you and and our friends, right? That we know. Asking difficult questions about and who designs, what pro- what programs or initiatives uh, uh, receive the money or not. So right. I have seen this, you know, like I can give you multiple examples of, of people asking. And and many of these questions are, to trouble. But many of these questions just comes from or from. Genuine curiosity, genuine respectful curiosity, wanting to know more how decisions are being taken and uh, who who decides, who has the power to decide, mm-hmm. who created those policy parameters and uh, etc. And so that's what I think is that we are trained and and, and many, maybe people that are not within collaborative dialogic practices also ask difficult <laughs> questions. I'm not saying that that this community is the only one, Mm -hmm. but I think we feel comfortable to put in in the table our questions because we want to know more, because we do not know enough, because we want to be informed. And I think these questions bring very rich conversations Mm -hmm. and and we make new meanings by asking these questions because Mm -hmm. there are so many layers that would be discussed, reflected together, examine together and if nobody asks anything then it is just like this is the way things have been done through years right so I see uh, the power of, of questions
0: that was a great example actually a wonderful example thank you yeah Okay. Uh, you also take the position that the radical stance of not knowing can bring about transformation. And I agree. And I'm just wondering if you could say how you approach the stance of not knowing.
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I think I, I take Harleen Anderson's idea of not knowing. And she has written and, uh, so in many articles and um, chap, book chapters and in her books, right? And like originally when, when the collaborative dialogic community and Harling was talking about not knowing people was understanding that the practitioner or the therapist was ignorant or not knowing or not being an expert. And, and that is not what she meant by not knowing, right? Um, not knowing was like all the people involved in the situation or all the people involved in conversation have a different wisdom, and and they know different things. So they not knowing was more about I. Uh, um, I do not know what is best. For, for example, the context of therapy, right? Uh, the therapist adopting a not knowing position with a client was more about I do not know what is best for you, since I have we have been talking thirty minutes, right? Or and um, was more about empowering the other to share their own wisdom, knowledge, ideas, etc., And the not knowing was a, a more about how we can together uh, create a meaning uh, as we talk, as we relate, as we, as we interact. So I think this not knowing is more about appreciation, uh, appreciating all wisdoms in the room. And and it's about the togetherness and the witness of and meaning making uh, as uh, as as we go along together, right? So that that is the way I understand. Not knowing is about appreci- appreciating and um, what all the voices involved, right? But the way I see and uh, this and not knowing as as maybe. Um, like in these lines of disruption and advocacy, etc., is uh, because it is in the making, and uh, like uh, as the, like the present and the future is being created together as we speak, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, not knowing is is such powerful because in most contexts, if only one person thinks they know, they will want to impose what they think is best. <laughs> Just thinking, for example, and uh, I recently supervised a student, and I will not tell a lot of them <laughs> because it's her story to tell. But uh, I have an indigenous story student, and uh, from I don't know if I should say like her community, but this this student and was involved her practicum in transforming uh, the policies related with child welfare. Or indigenous children right like like allowing empowering and um through through the bill and that indigenous peoples they decide and uh, what they do when they need to remove a child so so not necessarily the, the canadian government or, or the the provincial government so and um and I think her approach, right? She she likes she read uh, uh, Harlene Anderson, and and she found a lot of similarities between Harlene Anderson and indigenous ways of knowing, and in the, um, and uh, research as ceremony, and and many concepts that co- also comes from the wisdom of indigenous peoples. But and uh, what I was to say about not knowing is that, and uh, when she was in conversations about what is best for the indigenous children when the, the foster systems or the child welfare systems intervene and uh, she wanted to to know, you know, like share what, what is the perspective of indigenous and uh, people and they wanted to, to, to keep the, the children in their community for many things. One of the things is when they are removed to foster care, they lose their, their language, they lose their, their culture, they lose their, their indigenous values. Like so many things are lost by placing these children with, with uh, white or Canadian and, and uh, well, all, all people is Canadian, but with a specific uh, foster parents. And, um, and in, in, it was so challenging for her to do anything, And in this not knowing, the the other group, it was a a religious Pentecostal group, and they wanted to to say what is best for the indigenous children. Like what is the language they need to learn? What are the the customs, the habits, the the practices, the cultural practices they need to do? And and some of the things uh, that is very important for this indigenous group is how they practice fishing, for example how they do the fishing, how they do the hunting. It is very important for them. And uh, so this is what happened when uh, people do not, you know, like the relate with the not knowing is just one, the, the, the desire, the efforts to impose meaning on yeah. of others. Yeah. So what I think in, in collaborative dialogic practitioners is we try and, uh, to create meaning together. So it's not only one knowledge, one way of, of doing or
0: being. Okay. So, yeah, you know, we're approaching a time. I think where, you know, at least where I'm at in Southern California, things are starting to open up again. And that's going to require us to be out in the world again, um, and be in conversation again. And, you know, we're coming out of very politicized environment with a lot of views, a lot of voices. And you write about um, conversations with multiple voices and views. And I think those are the skills that are that we're going to need as we move into the future, right? How do we have conversations where there are multiple voices and multiple views? And I'm wondering if you have any wisdom for us about how we can get better at those kinds of conversations.
1: Well, yeah. You know, I think I also got inspired by your last book with with um, Justine. Oh, thanks. <laughs> about the the I don't remember the title about about the curiosity. Yeah, curiosity.
0: Right?
1: Yep. Yeah, and uh, I think in that book you also and I I, I like how and uh, I found it very no, creative and innovative. But what I think in the lines of of what you and and Justine have been also thinking and reflecting and uh, it's like about how we can be curious about each other and stay in conversation and in this polarized right Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. world how can we maintain that level of connection and and being in relationship so for me and uh, like I know like um, like in, in Mexico it's very polarized society because of the new president and in the U.S. because of your past president right. and in Canada is polarizing because of the the pro-mask versus anti-mask and uh, because of the COVID. So, so I, I think we, we have this tendency to just try to with, withdraw from dialogue and withdraw from collaborating together. And the way I see, you know, and curiosity and radical presence is it, an invitation for the listening and also for for staying in the table and 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 being in dialogue with each other. And we do not necessarily need to agree with what other people is thinking or doing. And uh but, but this tendency to be disconnected and, and and not listening to what the other people have to say. I, I found that is has not been helping, right? I think we need to maintain for me, dialogue, right, because of of the influence of, of Harleen Anderson and uh, being in conversation and in relationship is very important, even when we have uh, opposite and uh, opinions or, or different ways of, of seeing things. I think the most important piece is to be able to communicate with each other and, and share with each other what we think. And as I say, like sometimes, and um, we might have different positions, but being in dialogue together, bring opportunities for, for respect and, and feeling heard. And um, so for me, that, that is the piece about multiple voices is, is not having fears of staying in conversations because we do not have the same values or, or opinions.
0: Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, um, I'm going to go in our contemporary world, you know, we're opposite, we're talking about this kind of, um, this oppositional way of being that's really kind of, excuse me, have taken over now. Since you, you train therapists, what is the future for the therapist still in training or not that wants to practice in a more collaborative way? And do you have any ideas or suggestions about uh, that you can share with them, you know, it, we're in it, like you said, a very polarized time, but I think some people are going to listen to this podcast and are going to say, I want to do collaborative dialogical practice. How do I, how do I do that? Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, w- one thing, because I have been training and now people for 20 years and, uh, and training, I I mean, it's not necessary that I am training them in my model, right? I mm-hmm. am just, you know, the channel. <laughs> I have not written about my preferred ways to do therapy or what I think about therapy. I have not written about that. So when I teach and I train, I mostly use it. And uh, the, the the main models, you know, like the dominant models, the the counseling theories, and and key books in, in therapeutic practices, and and of course I infused with authors I, I like and I appreciate. But what I have seen is this strong tendency to develop models that, that um, tell the, the clinician or the therapist what to do, what questions to ask, what things to explore, what interventions you can make. And I, and I found that the most refined is a, a, a model in telling, in prescribing, Right. This is what you do in the first session, in the second session, and this is the questions that you ask to, to provoke change, and this is the interventions in order to maintain change. So the the, the more I have been in the field, I, I see this tendency to micromanage what uh, the therapist needs to say, do, etc. And but then, so there is a mismatch from all these wonderful ideas that could be used in therapy versus what happened in the therapeutic room by having supervising for 20 years and seeing in multiple occasions how models are so limited when you hear these stories and, and then you see the people struggling. <clears throat> and we all know also because of our trainings and we see this in the consulting room Is most of the things that are happening to a person are systemic issues. It's not is not individual issues, right? And still, I I can tell you one quick example. And recently, and I we were I was supervising a a therapy with an immigrant, and he came and he said, like, what I want is strategic strategies to manage anxiety and panic attacks. But then when you listen the story, that was his goal. I want strategies to manage panic attacks. But when we revised the story, you saw that this person was a taxi driver in Alberta who was beaten by his client, assaulted and beaten by, by his client. And all this was recorded in the taxi machine, recording machine. And it was destroyed by the owners of the taxi company. And so he didn't have the evidence of how he has he 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 was beaten in this because he was assaulted and he thought this person for, for and uh, in, uh, was originally from an Afri- african co- country in africa and uh he has his own triggers for his own trauma because of what happened in, in his in his city in his country et cetera but in any case and when do when he unpacked the story about like how the anxiety started how the panic attack started. Then you notice all these injustices since he moved because of violence from his country. Then he was violented here, etc. And, and the team where I we work as a team, the team was developing the strategies to manage panic attacks and, and saying, okay, breathing exercises and soothing techniques and, and grounding techniques and all these kind of wonderful ideas that I was here that were going to help this client. But here the issue is, and uh, uh, like saying, like what would you recommend for people, future or uh, practitioners or current practitioners is where is our listening? Is, and uh, what he needs is soothing grounding techniques. And uh, what about the rest of the story that is not about shaking and nightmares and not able to sleep? Okay, that is an, a hyper ventilating okay yeah that is past and and we might provide those grounding techniques and breathing and meditation yes but what about the rest we cannot dismiss those layers of complexity in our clients stories so I think for for the future is and uh, is questioning ourselves what are we going to do when when these layers of complexity unfold and when those layers involve social injustices, mistreatment, oppression, aggression, marginalized and, and exploitation. And I work a lot with immigrants here. And, and most of the stories and the issues they have is relate with exploitation, right? They they work a lot, they are being being paid very little, and most of these issues relate with poverty, or being just in this in a disadvantaged economic situation. And what are we going to do with those stories? And what are we going to say? Are we going to provide and uh, meditation techniques only? And, and, and as I say, those are important. And I believe in those. I, I practice those too. But that should not be enough. Like We need to do something else. We need to be involved. And we need to, to think differently. In how we are going to address the other layers in in our clients' stories.
0: Absolutely, thank you. Okay, uh, last question for you, Monica. Um, I'm always curious about this. What ideas, books, films, art, or whatever is capturing your attention these days? What do you What mm-hmm. are you wrestling <laughs> with? <laughs>
1: And that is a difficult one because uh, for many things, I have been extremely busy and, mm-hmm. and I have been, be- been very selective of what I read and what I see just because of, of I don't have a lot of time. But let me tell you that what I have been reading recently and uh, I think mostly this year have been related with Zapatismo, it's a, a Mexican okay. movement okay. and Black Lives Matters movement. But not not necessarily the news, right? But because the news are there, and uh, but I was intrigued by by the by history behind the movement. So what I have been reading is about social movements. I think one of the of the I can tell two examples. But when uh, Greta Thunberg and uh, had so much impact on social media. And I knew that she was not the first one interested in making a social movement about climate change. So I wanted to know more about who were the ones that started and uh, being curious about, like not curious, but what was the social movement behind Greta? who were the ones starting to reclaim, like we need to do something different. And you know, it's it's very fascinating because what I found is it were the indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples were the the first ones being highly concerned about what we are doing to the earth. But those voices have been just ignored for years, for decades, they were extremely worried. And indigenous peoples in, in Canada, for example, worried about how the water is contaminated, how they are extracting from, you know, like and their sacred land being taken for other purposes. So in any case, going back to your question, I have been immersing myself more in the history of social movements and uh, not, you know, climate change, a feminist movement and the Black Lives Matter, uh, Zapatismo, like like many. I'm just intrigued how these social mov- movements emerged, uh, how they disappeared, because I, I I came to some social movements that are not uh, relevant right now. I mean, not, not, not that they are not relevant, that they are not being discussed. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is some things I have been reading. And uh, in terms of movies and fiction novels, and uh, I have been intrigued by... Black narrative stories, so I have been trying to 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 watch more and uh, a, a, a film, film films and or movies that tells black stories right like like now that we were the Oscars, I was just amazed by by these wonderful movies like and the Judas and the Black messiah like the ones that were nominated it were po- powerful stories. So I have been uh, intrigued by non-dominant stories about uh, dominant groups' stories. I, I'm more intrigued about um, other groups and the same with my reading my, my in terms of my fiction novels. I have been recently absorbed by the narrative of Thomas King and uh, is a an Canadian indigenous author. And, and he has and uh, like, like his recent books are just so, and uh, uh, he's so talented and creative. He's a powerful voice. So Indians in, in, on vacation and is uh, so many. Hmm. And, uh, but he has, he's a prolific author, but I have been trying to immerse myself more in indigenous author, like Tommy Orange, and they're there. So mostly that I'm trying and uh, to expand the the listening the narratives of uh, marginalized groups.
0: That's great, and that that's a lot. That's great. Okay, um, one final question: If people want to reach out to you or find you, how do they find you? And I know you have a conference coming up too. You might want to.
1: Oh yes, in collaborative <laughs> dialogic yeah. practice.
0: Yes, right. So, yeah. so how would people find you, Monica?
1: yeah I, I think the best way to connect with me is uh, through email mm-hmm. so my email is uh monica with c and then my my last name which is sesma s-e-s-m-a at gmail.com so it's monica sesma at gmail.com i think that is the best way to connect with me
0: great uh and i'll have a link to the upcoming collaborative dialogical conference and um monica thank you so much for making the time and and sharing with us today it was great great to have you on the podcast
1: for including the link to the to the event so that's fantastic thank you so much chris
0: no problem take care yeah do too
1: thank you
0: all right that's our show and as always thanks for listening and Please check out the links in the show notes, both for the upcoming Collaborative Dialogical uh, Conference and also for the free webinar I have coming up on uh, going from a therapist to a consultant. So um, yeah, and as always, please rate and review the show on iTunes, share with a friend, and join me on all my social medias at the Radical Therapist on Instagram. At the we have a Radical Therapist Facebook page, all that kind of stuff. Come join us, be part of the community, and uh, and as always, you know, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Uh, my name is Dr. Chris Hoff. Thanks everybody.